This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. So 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, that doesn't even cover the issue on broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, good to have you along. I'm Michelle Stanley. The weather is cooling right off in the southern half of the state. If you're wrapped up in a woolly jumper, how do you like the idea of being able to track that jumper right back to the farm, to the paddock, to the sheep's back? There's a way, and it could also bring some handy profits to wool growers. The premium would be at least 30% over... The, the flock that we've got. Yeah, so there's a 10 to $12 spread over that, um, that micron range that we have. Taking you to the EU, where Australia could very well walk away from ongoing trade negotiations. We're not going to do a deal just for the sake of doing a deal. It's got to be in Australia's interests as well as being in the EU's interests. And you'll meet an unbreakable farmer. As the furniture van left the farm that day, I symbolically unclipped my identity off myself and hooked it on the front gate of the farm because that's who I believed I was. I was Warren the farmer, even though I'm a husband, I've got five kids, I'm a mate involved in my community, my whole identity was tied up in our farm. He's got quite an emotional story, which I'll bring you a little later, along with plenty more on Countrywide. The price of fresh fruit and veggies has been all over the place of late. Remember that $12 lettuce? Well, some good news for you. Prices are expected to remain fairly stable for the rest of the year. Market analyst Fresh Logic has been crunching the numbers, which show that post-pandemic things are finally beginning to settle. Managing Director Martin Kneebone says it's been a rough few years for industry. When the pandemic came along, we had a, a lot of pressures that was about manifested and let's say, share of stomach. So the retail sector saw large spikes of growth when we were told to close restaurants. And so the movement between those two, between 20 and 21, was, was big extremes. That caused uh, some, some disruptions as uh, food service outlets, some of them closed, and as retailers were dealing with huge spikes. Fruit and veg did a pretty good job of maintaining supply. Uh, toilet paper didn't do as well as what we no. did, and so and and so those sort of spikes then created uh, lots of challenges when we cycled over those patterns in the following one or two or three years because there was big d- demand lifts and and then as we fell into production patterns to try and guess or supply the new normal, we were cycling over huge big spikes and troughs. So we had two or three years of those challenges, which really only started to settle down in 22. And then we had a whole lot of vegetable crops adversely affected by weather. So vegetable, Hence the lettuce. Exactly. Um, and the lettuce went, fruit was pretty stable, but the lettuce got, got a lot of the, you know, the typical 12, 15-week vegetable crops had two or three plantings wiped out. And that shortened that right up. Now we're in 23, uh, supply is back to a fuller state, we're back to closer to a new normal, and we're dealing with, well, understanding how's the share of stomach landed, What's happened with eating out? What's happened with retail? Because we're, we're now trading through, a, let's say, a full supply period with more st- stability of prices. As to how has that manifested? What sort of changes as a result of that upheaval are here to stay? 
the big thing we've been surprised by is the resilience for eating out. Uh, in, in, in this climate of questionable consumer confidence, sentiment down, the most it's been for the last 10 years, we're still seeing people comfortable to eat out. And we think that's hardwired into lifestyle. We're seeing a, an aversion to don't lock me up again. And we've now got 15% of households with someone working at home two days a week, so they want to get out. So they're getting out, even despite the fact that we're seeing pressure on cost of living. They're still going out. And well, all all of that adds up to more money going out. But so it just reflects to us how hardwired that I'm going to go out. And and, and if you look at that over 20 years, in 2000, uh, about 26% of household expenditure on food was out of home. Last year, it was 39. So it's doubled. So it's increased by 50% in that period of time, which is big. Absolutely. And commodities saw a big increase in in prices in in the past year or so. Livestock, the prices are coming off there a little. What's happening with fruit and vegetables? Have Have they found a new level? Yes, they have. And they're down from 22, but that's really down from heavily disrupted weather based disruption. So we're down on that closer to 21. When we look at the last three or four years wholesale prices, we can see them reverting to the patterns of almost the prior normal, uh, and and we're getting mature full supply. So we we have opportunities to do more because we've got full supply, and and that's sort of where it looks like it is at the moment. And to deal with that trend of eating out, does that change the needs of the industry or what the industry needs to to deliver to the sector? Um, I think the industry uh, has always allowed that sector to sort itself out. The central markets are a great uh, distribution mechanism for food service to access what they want because they can get it as flexible as what they want. I think as an industry we could do better to understand them and cater for them. I mean, we've got some big buyers in that area. The quick service restaurants are very organised and they buy to spec and they buy direct, but we've also got probably 40,000 independent takeaway cafes and restaurants that regularly source, probably every day, through the markets. Our ability as a nation to produce through all different regions and flow it in and give them a a fluid access to inventory is manifested in how how easily they can support and, and access that stock, which they do. If you were to crystal ball gaze, what do you think the rest of 2023 will hold for supply? Uh, supply will be good, full, and I think prices will be down on last year. But last year was a big spike, and I think what we'll look back on 23 with at the end of the year is this is a lot closer to the new normal we thought we were going to get coming out of COVID. Managing Director of Fresh Logic, Martin Kneebone, speaking with Cassie Huff. Australia's trading relationship with Beijing seems to have taken a bit of a step forward and this time it's the horticultural sector set to enjoy the benefits. The list of orchards, packhouses and treatment facilities allowed to export to China has been updated for the first time in about three years. This year's update includes mangoes, citrus, stone fruit and cherries. CEO of the Australian Mango Industry Association, Brett Kelly, he was happy to hear the news. Well, I think it's, it's very early days, but it's a move in the right direction. Um, China is a huge market and it has a, a very uh, large middle class population uh, that are well educated and uh, quite wealthy. And, and mangoes, um, as you know, coming out of Australia, best uh, quality mangoes in the world. So the opportunity uh, long term is immense. So this is a move in the right direction. And it's been two years I understand, since that ban came into play. In the meantime, the mango market has moved into other avenues. Are those other avenues going to be dropped 
and all the mangoes going going to go back to China that were previously going to China, or is there going to have to be a bit of a reconfiguration of the market? No, I think I think it'll be more having your channels to market set up. So you really don't want to have all your eggs in the one basket. And the actual size of the market has grown again, uh, which means that you know volume and demand is going up. So it's really good. So um, getting back into China and the potential uh, China has in, in you know the next few years is only going to create a better situation for for moving um, a larger volume of mangoes. Did you see this coming or was it a complete surprise? Um, I heard a little bit about it, but um, again, you sort of concentrate on things that you can deal with in front of you. And and obviously, there's been uh, the COVID situation and then there's been, you know, relations haven't been very good uh, between uh, the governments. But uh, I've always believed that short term, I've had a fair bit of experience with exporting into China in the past. Um, and again, if you've got a product coming out of Australia or New Zealand and it's coming off farm, it's already considered the best in the world. If you then put into that the Australian farmer grower story behind it, you've just got a, a, such a competitive edge over everybody else. And when you add in that Chinese demand this early on in the mango season, is that going to do good things for domestic prices? Well, I think it will be. I think what we have to do, the, the, the key thing for... Um, horticulture is really when you talk to growers it's price profit and sustainability and we've got to get to a position where we get a better return I mean anybody can sell two dollar coins for a dollar but you end up going broke and we have this amazing product so we, we should be getting a fair price for it so I think having more channels to market gives you more options which gives you a better position to leverage and get a better fairer return for our farmers. How much pain did this two-year ban cause the Australian mango industry? Well, I think it's been difficult, but I think it's been difficult for everybody. Everybody's been in the same boat. And and as you know, with the the COVID situation, um, the country shutting down and a lot of the world shutting down, um, it takes a while for all of that to get back to normal. But, you know, it's a bit like real money never disappears. It just changes hands. So I think there's great opportunity now to to bounce back. It won't happen overnight, but this is a move again in the right direction. Do you expect conversations between mango growers and Chinese exporters to start up now and for contracts to to look at being signed from here on? I would think they'll be talking for sure. I mean, it it takes a a while to get to that point of of contracts. But you know what? Um, Being that... um, People will be talking now and, and looking at these opportunities. That's that's a great start, isn't it? Brett Kelly is the CEO of the Australian Mango Industry Association. He was speaking with Alice Marshall. The stone fruit industry is also pretty pleased. China is the number one export market for Australian stone fruit. CEO of Summer Fruit Australia, Trevor Ranford, expects about 110 Australian stone fruit growers should benefit from the update. You know, if I look at uh, the past season of 2022-23, uh, uh, we exported just on 15,000 tonne of stone fruit and around 62% of that uh, went to China. And that figure of the low 60s has been the figure for the last uh, two or three years. So as I said, since we got access in 2016, we've been able to build the market from basically a zero base to uh, in excess of uh, 11,000 tonne uh, going in there. So uh, 
subject to having uh, good weather conditions and a, and a more normal season for you know, the rest of 23 and the end of 24, uh, I would expect that you know, we will at least maintain that uh, volume level, if not uh, increase it, given that uh, you know, we have uh, good quality fruit from uh, October onwards. I understand that China normally updates its publication about new orchards, pack houses and treatment facilities that are allowed to export um, on a fairly frequent basis. But if there's been that big gap and you're saying it was last done in 2019... Well, well, this, this, sorry, the situation is that we update our list on an annual basis. So as an industry, we, we run a, with the Department of uh, Agriculture, Forests and Fisheries, we run a registration process. So we have updated the list uh, every year, but for whatever reason, the Chinese authorities haven't been updating their list. So the last list that they approved was the 2019 list. So we've had to rely on that. And as I said, a lot of changes have occurred with blocks and packhouse numbers. So are you hoping that now that it has been updated for the first time in a few years, that they might stay on top of it and it will happen on that annual basis? I, I gather yeah. that's pretty critical. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's you know, critical for all of those industries like uh, uh, table grapes and citrus and uh, others that uh, ha- have to do a registration for their pro- protocol countries. It allows uh, you know, the growers to make the, the appropriate changes and ensure that you know, the right block number goes on the right box going into into those countries. So it's a strong traceability for uh, the, the Federal Department here in, in, in their export uh, inspections and uh, for, the, for the Chinese authorities. So if you're working off a current list, it makes it so much easier for all parties and therefore... Uh, you, know, you hope uh, you know, improves the, the movement of uh, fruit through uh, you know, the relevant customs uh, situation. CEO of Summer Fruit Australia, Trevor Ranford, speaking with Kelly Hollingworth. Now, continuing that talk of trade, last week you heard about the new Australia-UK free trade agreement, which came into place on the 1st of June. Well, this week, Australia's trade minister has been in Europe to continue ongoing trade negotiations. But there's a chance Australia will walk away empty-handed unless it's in the interest of Australians. That was the message from Agriculture Minister Murray Watt. We've obviously been very clear about our position from the beginning of these negotiations that we really need to see some commercially meaningful expansion of new markets for our producers for this deal to be worth doing. Uh, And equally, we need the EU to understand our position when it comes to those geographic indicators. Uh, Both Don and I have met with our counterparts on numerous times and have explained that this isn't just an emotional issue for European producers. It's an emotional issue for Australian producers, because, as you said, we've had a lot of uh, migration post-World War II from Europe uh, to Australia that has seen our producers, our wine producers, our dairy producers bring their own products from their home countries and, and make them here. Uh, we, of course, have very high-quality Prosecco, Feta, Parmesan and other products as well, and we want to make sure that the uh, importance from an economic and emotional perspective for our producers is recognised by the EU too. Can you just clarify, are we talking about more than just naming rights? We're talking about access for our products to their markets. 
Absolutely. And uh, it's actually something I've been really keen to have understood by the wider public. I can understand why most of the debate in Australia around the EU free trade agreement ends up coming down to these geographic indicators. But the very most important thing from Australia's perspective is to expand the amount of beef, sheep, sugar, grains, wines, uh, horticulture, all of those agricultural products that we want to be able to send to, to the EU and which are currently very restricted. Um, we obviously can supply some of those commodities to the EU at the moment, but it's a very protected market. We don't, uh, we're not able to send very much of our product to that market. And of course, recent events have shown that it's important that we diversify our export markets and the EU is an incredibly valuable one. Um, sure. So the geographic indicators certainly matters and we're fighting the good fight there, uh, but, but Minister, it's also critical. Mm. Minister, notoriously though, even when there is agreement between uh, the two parties at, at the top level, it's notoriously difficult to get the member states to, to agree to some of this stuff. Often it ends up as a sort of localised debate in some far-flung part of Belgium as to whether the whole trade agreement gets up. Are we ultimately asking for something that EU member states will just not agree to? Uh, I don't think we are, and I think that what we're asking for is perfectly reasonable, especially when you compare it uh, to what other countries have been able to negotiate with the EU. Uh, I obviously can't go into exact detail about what we're asking for, but we have certainly modelled our approach on what other countries have been able to negotiate with the EU. So we think we are being quite reasonable in terms of our ask here. But you're right. I mean, the first step is obviously to get a free trade agreement, but the second step, and arguably more important, is then to negotiate the real access because there are always biosecurity considerations, there are food and hygiene considerations, and they can be used uh, by some of our trading partners to block access even when we've got an agreement. So, But we're, we're going to keep fighting really hard because this is an important agreement for Australian producers. But e equally, we're making the point to the EU it's important to them. They want access to our critical minerals, uh, there, there are uh, US car makers right now who have been able to obtain preferential access to our critical minerals. And if the EU want the ability to do that for their car makers and other products, then uh, we hope that they can understand our position on other things. Is Australia indicating to the EU that we would consider walking away if we don't get uh, genuine access? Yeah, we are doing that. Uh, Don has done that in the last couple of days, and I've certainly made that clear myself in the past as well. Um, we're not going to do a deal just for the sake of doing a deal. It's got to be in Australia's interests as well as being in the EU's interests. Uh, we still think that that is possible to do that, and Don was mentioning to me last night that we, we have been able to reach agreement for negotiations to continue. Um, they were scheduled to be paused for a period of time after these recent negotiations, but the EU have continued have agreed to continue talking, so that's a positive sign. Uh, but yeah, they, we're 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 a long way from an agreement at the moment. Um, and the discussions I've had with farm leaders in Australia also indicate to me that uh, if if we can't get a good deal, we're better off not doing one. Murray Watt is the Minister for Agriculture. He was speaking with Hamish McDonald. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Great to have you with me. Michelle Stanley is my name. Now, it certainly feels like winter in the southern half of Australia, and I don't know about you, but I'm living in my woolen jumper and slippers of late. How do you like the idea of being able to look at that jumper and trace the wool back to, well, not just the farm, but to the sheep it came from? 
Electronic ID tags for sheep and goats will become mandatory for every flock across Australia by 2025, and it's for biosecurity purposes. But one farmer on the New South Wales-Queensland border has had his merino flock EID tagged for years, and he's reaping the rewards in his wool clip because of it. Alice Marshall has this story. Two years ago, as his country began to recover from the most recent drought, Gundawindi sheep producer Alistair Purse began to restock his paddocks. Oh, we bought over 5,000 at the time from uh, all over eastern Australia and some from western Australia. He knew he'd have to spend the months following classing through this huge range of sheep and he'd heard of some new technology that he thought might help him do it. And so with that we thought that it was a unique opportunity to tag everything with the EID and then basically um, start um, placing data accordingly when it was captured. He approached sheep data consultant Elise Bowen to help him do this. For Al, he wants to um, have you know good fleece weights and good, good wool production in terms of kilos of wool. He also wants to have um, fine fibre diameter. I think he his target is sort of 19 micron and, and finer um, off the top of my head. Um, he also really wants to focus on reproduction because um, obviously kilos of lamb weaned and, and turn off of surplus sheep is, is a large profit driver in his business. So once we've identified, you know, these are the key pieces of data we, we can collect, then the next step is to work out a bit of a calendar. So you know, what specifically and when should we be collecting these pieces of data um, that, that line in with his normal management practices. Shearing stuck out as an obvious date, but it's the week prior that the EID tags come into action. OK, today we're measuring the average fibre diameter of each sheep in the, in the flock prior to shearing. So the data can be then crunched into an Excel spreadsheet and... Uh, the sheep can be drafted through an auto-drafter into the um, finest through to the strongest microns. This is Gundawindi-based veterinarian Mike Ravel, who is in Alistair Purse's sheepyard's micron scanning. I guess the simplest thing is we're looking for needles in haystacks. So somewhere in this mob there's 40 or 50 sheep that will be under 16 micron, which will really get into that micron premium. And then there'll be another 100, 150 that'll be between 16 and 17 for another line. And the basic thing is it's like a seesaw. The uh, premium for those fine micron lines outweighs the loss at the other end, providing the mean fibre diameter of the flock is under, as a guesstimate, about 20 microns. Here's Alistair Purse again. Once all the information from the micron, the offering, the micron capture is, is, is gained, we then um, talk with our agent who then speaks to exporters in regard to what specifics are needed to be followed when it gets up into the wool shed. They're pushed into the shed and shorn accordingly to their micron groups and therefore on the wool speci, which is the, uh, the documentation of the wool which the wool class it provides, that can be... Um, specifically managed on based on those micron ranges. In grouping his fleeces by specific micron ranges, Alistair Purse is able to access a premium price for his wool. The premium would be at least 30% over the, the flock that we've got. Yeah, so there's a 10 to $12 spread over that, um, that micron range that we have. And so being able to class accordingly to micron is, is fantastic because it's traditionally it was 
the wool would all come up and it was all done on a visual appraisal of the expertise of the wool classer and now that wool classer has information um, and is able to class accordingly to the parameters of the exporters and buyers. And it works with the wool classer, it's not replacing the wool classer's job? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, if, if anything, it's actually helping the, assisting the wool classer to not only um, class according to Micron, but it's also helping to giving their, them a better connect between what the exporters and buyers are actually wanting at the time. Gundawindi sheep producer Alistair Purr sending that report by Alice Marshall. There's more of this story on the ABC Rural website. Well worth a look. Just search ABC Rural Wool Tags. And finally, you're about to meet a Victorian fella who's known as the Unbreakable Farmer. Warren Davies is sharing his own life story to try and make a difference. He survived an extreme mental health episode directly related to the stress of his farm. And now he's travelling the country talking about it. I set out on a mission six years ago and it's to create awareness and education around mental health and wellbeing in rural communities because I come from a rural community, know the effects and the ripple effects. The second part of my mission is to inspire conversations because I really think we need to talk about this stuff. And, and whether it's not particularly your mental health, whether it's just challenges that you're facing, like it's a, it's a tough gig being a farmer and being on the land. The other part of my mission is then to inspire people or or empower people to to seek help, like to stick your hand up and and, and know that it's not a sign of weakness to to raise your hand and say, I'm struggling. Can you take us through your story? How did you get here? So I was actually, I was never a farm kid. I was born and bred in Melbourne and mum and dad were small business owners and it wasn't until the age of 15 when dad decided that he wanted to fulfil a fanciful dream of becoming a dairy farmer. When I was, when I started at, um, at secondary school, I started a whole went to a Catholic boys' school in the same suburb where we lived, but I was subjected to a fair bit of bullying, and that bullying kind of eventuated become fairly physical after the three years that I was at that school. I never realised the impact that had. Never reached out, and there's an underlying theme to my story that I don't. I never reached out. It wasn't until I became a farmer. Um, well, I'd worked on a farm for six years, and then at the age of 22, decided to buy our own farm. Oh, which ended up being 200 acres next to mum and dad's farm and we created a family business. So naively as that 22-year-old, I went into business with mum and dad. So those that are listening, you know, that are in family businesses know that that can be fraught with danger. And then I also went into business with the bank because they lent me the money. Um, But I went into business with a silent business partner and that's Mother Nature. And she was the one that threw me some curveballs and it was about two years into our journey where... We were subjected to a flood, which really sat us on our backside. But my focus was had to recover from the flood, never paid enough attention to my own well-being. So we moved forward, recovered, got a couple more years down the track. We had a family bust up on the farm. Unfortunately, we actually walked off our farm. We lost our farm. Um, Not lost it to the banks, but we just couldn't farm anymore. We were emotionally, financially and, and, um, you know, just broken and um you know physically exhausted so we we um we walked off the farm and and that was a really tough time because as the furniture van left 
left the, the farm that day, I symbolically unclipped my identity off myself and hooked it on the front gate of the farm because that's who I believed I was. I was Warren the farmer, even though I'm a husband, I've got five kids, I'm a mate I'm involved in my community. My whole identity was tied up in our farm and obviously being dairy farmers as well, it's pretty intense. It's 24-7, it's all-consuming. It's not just your business, it's where you live, where your kids grow up, it's the whole thing. And so it was a massive failure, I believed, and I was feeling a lot of shame and guilt. So that whole journey took a long time to kind of work way, and it's still here today, it's still part of my healing process speaking and sharing my story is very cathartic what's your immediate advice to people listening to this right now and who are just finding it a bit tough uh whether it's weather finances you know not having people to talk to what's what's step one i think communicating and that's why they're my three lessons communicating with the people around you how you're traveling whether it's good or bad and making sure you know that you've got the people around you that can support you and help and listen then obviously you know staying connected don't isolate yourself and then seeking help farmer and mental health campaigner warren davies speaking with ellie honeybone and if this story has raised any concerns for you do reach out to lifeline australia you can call 13 11 14 that is it for Countrywide this week. Great to catch up with you. I'm Michelle Stanley. I'll catch you next time.